nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Kareem Benzema needs to rest and the numbers reveal why. Welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast where we have great news. Barcelona have suffered their worst start to a La Liga season in 25 years, which means Real Madrid are only one point behind in the league title race after their loss in Mallorca tonight. And joining me, Kian Sobani, to break it all down, the loss, the formation, the tactics, the questions, is Om Arvin. Om, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. You know, that was just a beautiful game. It was it was wondrous to see... Um. Well, well, it was actually really quite fun to like debate about and like make jokes on what we thought the formation was going to be um, going into this game. And I mean, the rest wasn't so fun. I mean, we conceded within like the first like ten minutes, and then it was pretty painful from there on. But like, there was something. The beginning, the the run up to the game was pretty fun. There were lots of memes. There were lots of jokes, and then yeah, it was pretty depressing after that. So, I'll. All of those memes and jokes aside, because part of it was just kind of banter and like, you know, just playing around and making a joke out of it. <clears throat> I was pretty sure that it was just going to be a double pivot of Isco and Casemiro. And I uh, and I came to that conclusion just because when you saw the front three, it wasn't really, um, I guess, versatile enough to kind of morph this into anything outside of a 4-4-2 where it's Jovic and Benzema and then Vinicius and James on the wings. Funny enough, if if I had to summarize this match in like an elevator pitch of sorts, we'll break this down in detail. But if, if you had to just take it away, uh, take away something from it and explain it to somebody, as much as I thought defensively it was chaotic, the problem actually was offense to me. It was you you put a gung ho lineup and you couldn't create anything, um, and. And, f- and fundamentally, you couldn't mask uh, an unstable formation with a bunch of attacking players and hoping that you would just create a bunch of chances. And it and it, and I think if you were facing anyone better than Mallorca today, anyone capable of a decent build-up coming out of the back, and you looked at the holes that were behind the midfield and the disjointed press, it would have been more than one nil. And Mallorca mustered, I believe, a quarter of a, an XG. Uh, Point two five, and that was it. And and you couldn't overcome that as as much as we want to say. Well, Mallorca uh, looked great and stuff, and maybe they did because we expected so little. And it's a great achievement for them, but you couldn't overcome facing an XG of point two five, even with one, two, three, four, five really capable of attacking players um, on the pitch today. Yeah, so. I honestly think that's a pretty great way to kind of sum it up because it hits at all all the important points that we need to discuss. Um, and just to add to that, Real Madrid's XG was 0.51. You know, we did have um, more shots. Like, I think um, we had 12 shots to Mallorca's five. 
Bart, pretty pitiful XG doesn't surprise me because the shot locations we got were not great at all. Um, I think maybe you can say Benzema's chance was being underrated a bit, the one where he hit the bar mm. off um, off a Hamas long ball, but that was literally our only, you know, good chance, quote-unquote, in that game if you feel like that it's being underrated by the XG model, which is possible, you know, it does. It doesn't get all the shots perfectly, and it's more useful as a model when you're looking at a lot of games rather than one. But we can give, you know, whoever wants to defend um, that attacking performance. Um, I mean, I don't think that's many, but whoever wants to, we can give them that one chance. And other than that, it was pretty much nothing. And like you said, when you when you put a gung ho attacking lineup like that, I mean, I don't think. Once we saw what the formation was going to look like on the pitch, I think all of us knew that, hey, defensively, this is going to be shaky when you have Isco in a double pivot. But at least the idea is right. Like, we should be able to outscore the opponent. And the fact that you cannot create a coherent offensive system from those players, like you said, that is extremely concerning. Um, And I think part of that comes down to the fact that we did not take Mallorca seriously. And part of that comes from us starting Isco in the double pivot, like just a clear sign of disrespect towards the opponent, um, which is, you know, I, I mean, I, I I guess you can say we didn't have the midfield depth, right? You know, Kroos injured, Modric injured, so Valverde has had a lot of minutes, but it was our lack of midfield depth is also kind of Zidane's fault. Like when you have four central midfielders and only one is a defensive midfielder, why do you push Marcos Llorente out of the team? Um, you know, even if he's not going to be your starter, like, I mean, I mean, it, that was just kind of Zidane's own doing, right? Like, I mean, he just decided, I don't want you, and you're gone. You know, even if it means going to, to Atletico Madrid, I just, you know, you're out. So, I mean, that, I think, is on Zidane. And then the fact is, like, if this was any other opponent, he probably would have started Valverde regardless of the fact that he had a lot of minutes on his legs because, you know, it's still it's still a league game. It's a professional game, and we need we, we want to win the league at the end of the day. So it was a sign of disrespect, and I think, you know, when, when your coach, that it's clear, you know, whether your coach, I don't think Zidane went into the changing room before game and was like, yeah, this is going to be easy. But when you send out that kind of lineup and communicate the formation to your players, I think it sends a message to the players that, hey, we don't really need to take this game seriously, you know, either. And, you, you know, you kind of pointed out that, like, if this was any other team, we would have lost by a lot more. I agree. I mean, I, I don't think Mallorca actually played that well. Um, they botched a lot of counterattacks. Um and they often seem kind of unsure about after going up whether they wanted to counter with like speed or whether they wanted to retain the ball so they could calm down and, and release some pressure. And that cost them in a lot of situations where they could have created chances. But defensively, I didn't think they were really all that impressive. Aside from their back line individually, there were some really good performances. But from an organizational perspective, it wasn't great. I mean, if you go back and just look at how Mallorca is trying to defend space, I mean, it's kind of difficult to understand what they're trying to do because the midfield and forward line kept getting sucked to the ball in numbers. There was space between the lines for Benzema to constantly get onto. And then there were constant one versus ones on the flanks. So the fact that we couldn't create more than half an XG um, and one clear-cut chance if, you, if you're counting that Benzema shot off the bar, you know, that's pretty concerning. Well, I, I agree that I don't think, I don't think we... 
um, we rated Mallorca adequately enough. I don't think we <clears throat> thought it was going to be that difficult, or maybe we did, but I think I think I think there's definitely um, a scenario where Zidane looked at the schedule and he was like, "This is Mallorca. I can get away with an, an attacking lineup and kind of an experiment." I, I, but I do think the midfield depth thing is a bit overblown because even in this game, you had, even with like the freak, freak nature of Modric and Kroos being out, you had Fede Valverde who's in good form. And you also had the benefit that Classico was moved, which means you can focus on Galatasaray. You can put two 11s that are your best 11 available. I agree. And, I agree. and I was worried mostly about, you know, we talked about this on last week's podcast. Casemiro has played nearly every minute this season for both club and country. So I, if if we had Classico, I would have been more worried about running him into the ground. But with Classico being moved and having the the comfort that next weekend is just pure rest and doing whatever we want to do, then it, you can just feel that um, the best eleven in both games without worrying about burning Casemiro out to an extent. But why Valverde? I get he's all, he's also coming back from international break, but um, I guess I guess he's younger. He doesn't have as much minutes on yeah, him. Yeah, he's younger. He has younger legs. He's not he's not going to play that many minutes. He we may not even see him against Galatasaray, and we probably wouldn't have seen him in Clasico if that game went ahead because you probably would have had Modric and Kroos back. And so why not play him? And I. The other side of the coin is that Zidane had both Hamas and Isco over the international break, so maybe he worked on some things with them. But I also I think there was Valverde was the only one from a box to box presence, a two way midfielder who would have helped Casemiro defensively. I think Isco was through no fault of his own. By the way, I want to I think most of his podcast, from my point of view anyway, is not going to be slandering the players as much as much as like. You can put Isco there into a little pivot and slander him all you want. About half the people, about half the people listening to the pod just just closed the windows, got out of the app. Yeah, this is you know no no player slandering. We, so disappointing. But this is but this is what we saw, right? It was it was Courtois' fault for the first goal. Apparently, it was Isco's <laughs> fault for playing a double pivot. Um, and uh, I I also was kind of dumbfounded a bit by the the overreaction to Odriozola and Vinicius's kind of bad moments. I thought they were actually good. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, but I don't... And Zidane said after the game uh, regarding the team shape, because someone asked him about it, and he said, each player must do well when they're picked. And I, I get that logic, but you are also responsible for putting them in a situation where they can thrive. And when was the last time Isco played in Del Pivot? Do we have... Can, can we say ever? Has he, he ever? Literally never... He never has played in that position before. Okay, thank you. So we can't expect Isco to just magically morph into this double pivot uh, unicorn. And you can, the first goal, you can complain about Odriozola all you want. You can complain about Courtois all you want. The reality is the space behind the midfield and the press and that sequence, if you rewind it from the beginning, was absurd. Um, and then Militao is not in a position to cover. James should have come in to the central position and covered for Giselle he didn't and then they score um but so these were the options though you could have put Valverde there another option that you and I talked about uh in slack I think it was around halftime was if you didn't change or you didn't bring Valverde in right away you could have brought in James um centrally and morphed to a 4-3-3 with Casemiro at the base Put Benzema on the left and he's on the right and Jovic 
um, make Jovic more of a target and feed him maybe through Isco and James in the middle and Vinicius and Benzema feeding him to the flanks. In the end, Jovic was a ghost. Even I don't I don't want to blame him either. I think he was starved of the ball. Um, I'm not saying he played well or he didn't play well, but uh, I kind of felt bad for him actually. Um, but I think those changes just never happen. And James and Isco, we're talking about midfield depth. They're both they've both played in four three threes before as a central midfielder. Mind you, I don't know if they've ever played it together. Uh, but that was an option. They could have done that. Instead, James was this two-way winger, and I thought he did well offensively anyway. But there were just definitely things that I don't think we should sit here and slander all the players for um, and expect them to do things they've never done before in their careers. Yeah, so I think the four-three-three thing is what really baffled me because I think the point you brought up with the depth is, is really important um, because it's definitely an issue, but... I think we. I, I think Valverde could have definitely played to get, played today. I, I don't really understand what we were necessarily resting him for, and if we wanted to rest anyone, like you said, it should probably have been Casemiro. Um, but let's like you know, if if you want to defend Zidane on this, like I can give you that. But if you're assuming that like you know Zidane was 100% correct not to start Valverde, then why go with the double pivot, right? Because if you're just thinking tactically right if you have a mid if you have like midfield personnel basically if we're saying the only ones available are isco james casemiro how how do you try to build something that's sound defensively with 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 those players you know because you're talking about um especially if you're going to try a double pivot you're talking about one player who's just not i mean he's not good defensively you know in in a traditional sense you, you, what you want to do is pack the midfield, right? To make up for a lack of qualitative superiority, you want numerical superiority. So instead of having two players guarding the center of the pitch, you want three. Have Hamas guarding the right half space, Isco guarding the left, and naturally because Casemiro is then acting in that position that you know he's extremely well-versed in, which is kind of shielding the spacing behind, mm-hmm. you have Isco and Hamas being able to do their work higher up the pitch, and engage in more pressing actions rather than having to defend space, which is what they're the weakest in. And Hamas is a very good presser. You know, he might not be the best at, you know, like tracking back, trying to make, ensuring that he defends space on the counterattack, but he's a good presser, and Isco's a solid presser as well. To me, that just makes a lot more sense defensively. And yes, it's going to be, you know, well, it didn't actually didn't have to mean, you know, Benzema on the left, right? Because we had the wingers. We had more than enough wingers as we saw. We substituted two wingers on in the second half. You know, we could have gone in with the 4-3-3. That would not have been ideal, but would have probably been a lot more stable defensively. And even after, he, you know, he went in with the initial 4-4-2 at halftime, he had a chance without making any substitutions to put Benzema on the left, which again, isn't ideal, you know, he can do it because the way he plays as a striker is to kind of live in that left half space area anyway. And Marcelo will keep the width because, you know, he essentially acts as a winger on offense. You know, it would have worked and it would have protected us defensively and it would have enabled Isco to move forward and influence the game. And instead, he was lost both defensively, obviously, and offensively because, you know, he was unsure of how he was supposed to commit himself and how to time his runs because when you're in a double pivot, you need to be more reserved, but you still need to find ways to influence the final third. So, yeah, I just to me, it's very difficult to to defend the ways Zidane handled this game, 
And I think focusing on individual performances is kind of like a cop-out. Like, you know, we can still discuss all the Diazola because him getting sent off was, you know, it was stupid. You know, that's on him. But sure. it, it allows it allows you to go away from the fact that, like, we were not set up to succeed at all. Um, and we were actually set up in a way that, you know, hindered us badly since the first second of the game. And, you know, if you miss that, I think you're missing the biggest reason for why we ended up losing this one. So... Um, what offensively, I know you mentioned it just a bit now, but what did you, so I, I thought there were some individual things happening that were encouraging amid, amidst it all. Um, Audrey Zola cutting in from the right and making these square passes to Isco or Vinicius. Um, I thought outside of two sequences in particular, one, the goal we conceded and the other one, the red card sequence. He was actually quite good defensively, too. Um, nobody could really beat him for pace on that flank. They couldn't get, dribble past him. Um, and he played play well offensively. James, <clears throat> um, five key passes today. Um, after the goal, we can see that he started to actually track and play as a two-way winger because he realized he had to. Um, one really beautiful line-breaking pass to Benzema when he hit the crossbar early. Diagonal balls, vertical passes... Um, did well offensively. Vinicius, a lot of slander for not being able to finish, and rightfully so. When he gets into that last moment, maybe he's in his head or whatever. But built leading up to it, he was one of the few line-breaking presences we have. And I thought actually he, there were a few moments where he was ready to go on the break and Mallorca had a high line and we just didn't get the ball to him. Those were some of the good things brewing offensively. But I just thought there was like a lack of cohesion and understanding what we were going to do. And one of the clear things to me from the eye test was I have to go. I have to look at the stats now. Maybe I will, um, um, as I'm as I'm kind of saying this. But the it was clear with Jovic and Benzema in the box. And again, Jovic was a ghost. He didn't like have any chance, any chances or touches today. There were good crosses coming in from Marcelo and James. Like actually, really good high quality crosses. But Mallorca picked them off. Um, James had eleven crosses. On his own, Marcelo six, Casemiro two, Vinicius two. Um, so there wasn't like an un, un like unheard of amount of crosses, but those were some of the things that were happening offensively. But it was just it was easy for Mallorca to defend. There just wasn't really much else happening offensively apart from some individual brilliance from certain players, and not to mention Benzema too, who I was actually dropping deep and had some great touches. Um, but yeah, what else did you see offensively that you liked or didn't like? Yeah, so Benzema to me was really in moments he was quite incredible. Um because and and that's the thing like I think you essentially got to the heart of of what was happening offensively. It was a lot of like solid individual actions um that, you know, just weren't really happening in conjunction with each other. You know, there were a couple moments where, like, you know, the Hamas pass to Benzema worked off. There were some combinations that Benzema was able to create. But it just kind of seemed, it actually kind of reminded me of, like, the Solari days um, where, like, the offense was, was kind of based on, like, someone has to initiate, you know, against multiple defenders, you know, beat them, create an angle, and then rely on, you know, the rest of his teammates kind of reacting to that and just kind of moving, you know, 
doing everything on the fly to work these combinations and create a shot on goal. Um, and it didn't really look like there was a plan outside of that, that there was some kind of like, you know, go to, you know, offensive mechanisms that we were, that we were looking towards that we knew we could rely on to one progress the ball and then attack the final third. And, you know, as soon as we go down, obviously our thought is always to cross, um, Hamas actually had 11 crosses today. Marcelo had six. Um, and I think because of the fact that like Mallorca just were not very organized defensively, the, our individual actions, you know, worked in terms of ball progression. But then when it came down to the final ball, I think Mallorca's defenders just dealt with it really well. But when I look at, when I, when I think about just how disorganized Mallorca were, I, I, I have to believe that, you know, any kind of like, you know, detailed or semi-detailed plan to get players into position, you know, to have them, you know, thinking about their, you know, their positioning in relation to everyone else and how to move the ball up the pitch and how to disorder, you know, that that back line and that midfield structure. Like we, we would have created a lot more chances. I think if we face like a decent defensive team, you know, with the same kind of offensive approach today, we would have created even less. We would have had even less shots. Um, so I think that, yeah, I mean, it just that that somehow the offense being the most depressing thing in in a game where we had a double pivot of Isco and Casemiro, like, I mean, that's that's not a good thing. I mean, I don't necessarily think that's like reflective of how our offense is going to be going forward, but more just how we did not take Mallorca seriously at all by the fact that it didn't really look like we had an offensive plan out there and we were just kind of doing things. Um, and it, it's interesting, like you touched on it a little bit, but like the substitutes, uh, when the, the changes that eventually came on, it was fed in 66 minute Fede and Rodrigo come on for Jovic and Isco. Um, part of the challenge also in that moment for changing things was that eight minutes later, Odriozola got the red card, which threw everything out of whack as Casemiro moves back to a center back position, Fede at the base of midfield. And you're forced to kind of push everyone else up. Um, so it was more chaotic in that, in that, uh, I guess, in that situation. And thankfully, you, I guess, um, we didn't really concede amid that chaos, which was interesting. I mean, concede chances um, after the red card. So there was that was that was good, and we actually had some chances. We had Ramos on the corner. Uh, Militao on a corner, not not great chances, but Ramos had a couple moments on set pieces. Um, the the one that, that doesn't haunt me, but like I'm, it was disappointing to not get a good chance out of it. Was when Benzema gets the ball in transition and plays a really nice pass to Rodrigo on the counter on the right, um, and it didn't amount oh, to yeah, anything. Nah. I had high hopes for that, that moment. Was not, if we were going to get anything from this game, that was the moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. I think because like, because like I, I think now like I mean we gotta address like some of the individual performances. Um, unless you have more things to say about like more notes on like the collective. Yeah. Um, so. So where do you want to go from here? Because I was like actually like, going over my notes and trying to figure out figure out um, if there's anything else that I, I miss, but like, I think some of these will just come out in the questions. If you want to move to questions. 
Well, I, I mean, there was some individual stuff, right? Okay. To talk about. Go for I it. I mean, I guess, I guess kind of the thing I just wanted to like address was like, especially Vinicius, um, who really took a beating on social media. Um, mm-hmm. By the way, I was the one tweeting on the account. Everyone seemed to think it was Keon, which is great because <laughs> it means I can tweet without <laughs> accountability. <laughs> um, but yeah, like did what did someone no. say? You you said it to me. It was like something Sobani, but I don't know what it was. But um, so like that he, so there you he, had your moment. Um, you had um, you had people. You you basically were were tweeting unchained people thinking it was me. So you were you were doing it without any conscience and or worry about what people might think of right, you. Right, exactly. Um, so if although but, but obviously that's, that's the the, the problem is that for your good tweets, people also thought it was for me. So people just thought I had. It I was don't a, have. People, I don't have I don't have good tweets. I don't have good tweets. So you did, as I as I mentioned to you, Kay Murray texted me, and she was very very um <laughs> very full of praise for your for your Stephen A. Smith tweets. It was a very Casemiro esque performance uh, on the on Twitter today. A lot of good, a lot of bad. Sometimes maybe good, sometimes sometimes <laughs> maybe shit. By the way, Casemiro, we're talking about individual stuff. Isn't this a classic Casemiro game? I thought he was great defensively, like actually really good. Um, if you kind of discount some of the positional wonky position of the entire team not just him um defensively he was mopping up pretty much everything in his passing and some of his ball touches were just absurdly bad um anyway so i cut you <laughs> off sorry there was there was one moment okay so like th- this was just a game i think where you could tell that casemiro was gonna have like a great defensive performance because if he didn't it would have just you know it was like almost like he had no choice because he was the only one that was going to cover anything. But there was one moment towards the end of the game where like he was playing as a center back and he had gotten to the right side of the pitch. Um, And, you know, there was only one player coming up to press and he was like three feet in front of Casemiro and, you know, he wasn't doing anything. He was just standing there and, and Casemiro looks up and he wants to spray the ball and he just pummels like a hundred mile per hour pass right off the guy three feet in front of him and it bounces off Casemiro he controls it and then just like moves the play forward it, nothing happened there but it was just so funny to me that like just just he absolutely just killed the guy with the pass when he was like three feet in front of him anyway yeah so Casemiro kind of a hit and miss performance but definitely far more positive than negative um you know, like we said kind of a classic Casemiro performance but back to Vinicius who also had some good and bad, but I thought his bad was underrated. It's not light or, or bad was far overrated, my bad. Um, because it, he, 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 there was one long shot where he just skied. There were a couple of others where he kind of like dribbled forward and he dragged his shot wide. But it's not like he was put into positions where he had clear-cut opportunities where you'd expect him to score and he messed it up. So, yes, I think finishing is probably the biggest thing Vinicius needs to improve on going forward. But to specifically focus in on this game, to me, kind of speaks more to, like, the agenda that we've spoken of before, which is that last season it was all, you know, Vinicius is the greatest of all time. You know, I, I why was, you know, Lopetegui never starting him? He should, you know, he's the best player we've ever had. And now it's like Vinicius is absolute trash. We need to sell him. He's garbage, which... I mean, I'm not making that up. That's like things I was actually seeing people replying to me when I was defending him. People were getting mad. Like, you know, this 19-year-old kid, we need to sell him because he's horrible. When 
you know, there can't be any balance, right? Like as a 19 year old kid, he, he either has to be Kylian Mbappe or he's a complete flop. The fact that he was creating, you know, danger on his own with his dribbling ability, with him trying to initiate things by himself, which were very similar, similar to the things he was doing last season. Mm. Apparently that didn't matter because he wasn't able to score or, you know, create that final ball, which no one else could, by the way. It was just the expectations, I think, were different last because we didn't, people didn't expect much, I think. And then they were blown away because he was the only one doing things. And then um, this, so this was, I, this, I kind of off topic, but kind of not. I was warning Diego about this on the Tudor's Tacticus podcast. I was like, just wait until Ansu Fati has his first stretch of bad, like, performances. Oh, my God. You're going to be you. You won't be able to stand Barcelona fans because. And this was, and I was just waiting. I was like, I was trying to think of what could be the most, um, like what could add to this already volcano of a fire. What <laughs> what what fuel source could actually just trigger this and turn it into an atomic bomb? And I thought if Kubo had come on and scored in this game, it would have been lights out, lights out. I think we that the the podcast would be broken, the internet would be broken. And the narrative would have been, I can't believe we kept Vinicius. Um, the washed-up Vinicius at the age of, how old is he now? Has he, has he hit? 19. He's 19. He's um, 19, yeah. And, and, not, uh, and not kept Kubo, who, by the way, has barely played this season, has not played much in one of the worst teams in La Liga. I love Kubo. I'm just, I'm just giving you perspective of, like, it's always something that um, we don't have. It's what people want. And the, uh, the flavor of the month will change. Um, anyways, we this yes. is this is standard yeah, so football stuff. I wanted yeah, football Twitter. So I was going to transition. So I'm glad you brought up Kubo because I was going to transition from Vinicius to Kubo mm-hmm. and make essentially make that point you were making. Um, but like, yeah, like to what I was saying earlier is like Vinicius' performance today was not too dissimilar at all from the types of performances he had last season, and yet the opinions on who he is as a player being so stark i think is quite telling and it's it's kind of like the natural i mean this is kind of a thing all fans do but with madridistas it's always more intense and it's like with young players it's like they'll go through this really impressive spell Mm. we'll be enamored with them and then once we like gain a bit more perspective and then see them go through kind of a rough patch we have to go the other way like you know it's and i think it's partly because we just don't have a culture really of developing young attacking players in the team we generally have ones that like if they're young they're Ronaldo or Bale and they've come and they're already world-class players or they're Hamas and they're on the brink of world-class like you know seeing like a person like Vinicius develop in the team like we've not really had that like I I would say like Benzema is one of the rare ones and he had such like um you know one institutional faith and then like he ended up getting enough chances that that he actually proved himself, but you know half the fan base still thinks he's overrated. Um, yeah. But Kubo, the interesting thing with Kubo was like I was fearful of him coming on. You know he he's a good player, and a lot of people were, and they were saying when Kubo comes on, he's going to show why he's you know better than Nisius or whatever. I, I don't think he actually played that well. He had his moments, but there were a lot of situations where he made the wrong decision, where his dribbles didn't come off where he was off the same wavelength with his teammates, so he was trying to initiate some combinations in the final third, and Ramos just easily intercepted them. Basically to say, not to be like, oh man, Kubo's terrible, but to say, like, if you had replaced Kubo, Vinicius with Kubo, 
I'm not sure anything different would have happened because Mallorca had a disjointed attack kind of similar to the way we did. And if you just kind of swap players out and put them in, I don't think it's necessarily going to change anything. I mean, we even saw that putting in Raheem Diaz and putting in Rodrigo didn't really change much, much when the issues are kind of systemic. And I can guarantee, you know, let's say Kubo gets his chance, which I hope he does in Mallorca. He'll probably take it because he's a very good player. We'll be enamored with him. Then he'll come to Madrid. He'll hit a rough patch. And this exact same discourse we're having over Vinicius right now, we will have over Kubo. I can guarantee it. And honestly, the same thing happened with Odegaard, right? We're all like pretending, well, not you and I, but many of us are pretending we always backed Odegaard. There was definitely a time a couple of years ago where we were all just like, many people were like, yeah, I, Odegaard, I, I don't see what's so special about him, right? He should have made it, even though he was only 17 years old. We do this with all young players. And the only thing that surprises me is that we haven't spotted that like cycle that we keep going through. I think also it's important to note that um, when we, uh, I'll speak for myself, when I when I kind of defend these these players, I'm not saying they're blameless. I'm not saying they can't improve, and anything of that sort. But I do think some context is needed and some patience is needed at times. Um, Marcelo himself today said it after the game. He said that Vinicius is a kid. He's 19, and he has kinks to his game that. You know, I had plenty of kinks to my game at his age. Um, how many years did it take for Marcelo to actually become the Marcelo we we grew in love and into his peak? It was it was it, later in his twenties, and um, this is standard across the board. So just that that's all. Um, and we're gonna revisit Vinicius, by the way, in the questions. But is there anything else you want? Yeah, but mm. yeah, I mean, older Zola, I guess, is one we have to touch on. But like, yeah, I mean, like, my, I guess my question is to people who are so critical. It's like. How do you think, how do you expect players to develop, right? Because we keep saying we want them, like people are saying Vinicius, we want them to go on loan. Then when they go on loan, like Kubo does and Odegaard does, we say, why aren't they in the team? And then when we're in the team and, you know, they have growing pains, we're asking, why aren't they on loan? When they're on the loan, we say, so it's like, we have to have an understanding of how the development process works. And that requires us as fans to like kind of sit down and understand like, it requires patience from us. And like the always the reaction is to be like, well, we're my, we're we're Real Madrid. We don't have patience. Well then don't don't ask for so many young players to be in the team. Don't, you know, don't, you know, applaud, you know, because it's it's a pretty common thing for us to be like, oh, us signing so many young players is a good thing. I agree, but people will laud that and then not want to have the patience to have that develop. Like those, you know, you need to match that kind of patience, you know, with your admiration of this kind of strategy. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself frustrated over and over again in this cycle, in this endless cycle. Um, so, I mean, to Odri Zola, who, you know, I thought he was good offensively, but, you know, I, I think like his tackle was pretty inexcusable. And it's kind of the thing where it's like, you know, there's some gray, you know, in between the black and white. It's, you know, we don't have to say that Odri Zola was terrible because I don't think that was true. But at the same time, I think his tackle was irresponsible and it didn't cost us the game, but I think it cost us whatever little chance we had of getting back into it, which is still significant in a game of such small margins. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pretty um, much all I had to say about it. Well, uh, the, I guess, I don't know if this makes anyone feel better, but um, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, maybe it makes you feel worse. But the idea of like, this is Real Madrid and, you know, we don't have patience, I think is actually very a very flawed logic in that, 
um, this club has gone so many huge long stretches in its history of just not being good. And by not being good, I mean like not a European contender um, and and not doing well in the league. And for my lifetime, what I witnessed was 12 years between um, the 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 ninth Champions League title and La Decima, and I was and there's been way bigger droughts than that throughout the club's history. But one thing that br- really brought me back was Alex Kirkland tweeted about this today. He said, "Madrid's last loss in Mallorca in La Liga was February 2006." Obviously, the context there is that Mallorca haven't been in, in La Liga for a few years. Uh, the team that day really haunted me. This was the lineup: Casillas. Cicinho, Roberto Carlos, Sergio Ramos, and Raul Bravo, which is essentially, at the time, is interesting because it's four pure wingbacks in your central defense because Raul Bravo is a left back. Sergio Ramos at that time hadn't been fully converted yet. He was a a right back. So you had a makeshift center back partnership of Ramos and Raul Bravo and then Beckham, Zidane, and Gravison. Zidane in his last year. Gravison, Beckham, Robinho, Ronaldo, Julio Baptista. Um... So that just brought me back in, uh, and made me remember that there's there's been much darker days than this. And, you know, we're still second in the league. Um, all right, questions, Om? Yep. Okay, patreon.com slash managing Madrid. Go there, pledge. If you're not a patron, you're missing out on so much content. Namely, Matt Wiltsey and I, we review the players on loan every Tuesday morning. Um, we watch every Real Madrid who played on the weekend and then, review and review their performances and their development and then any post-game show for a midweek game so this week's uh, Galatasaray game huge one is only for patrons that post-game show so make sure you get access over at patreon.com slash managing madrid um some uh something to note for you guys for the questions for this podcast we've done our part to um uh, <laughs> make you guys seem a little bit more coherent by editing your questions because there was a lot of F this, F that, F this player, F that player, sign this player, sign that player. Um, and we we filtered it for you guys because we know we feel that emotion after the game too, but these questions came in right after the game and we know that you guys would have been posting it differently uh, had they come in like once you kind of zoom out and you take a breather. Um, so we've done that for you. We got your back. All right. First patron question is from Olawa Pamimo, Ola Donjai, a wonderful $10 plus patron, who uh, we always give a shout out on the podcast, but I think this is the first time submitting a question. Olawa Pamimo says, hi, everyone. I've not posted in a while, but thought I had to after this game. First of all, what the hell are we doing in training? There are clearly areas that we need to focus on, such as how to market defense and midfielder. How was Baba given the ability to look like Xabi Alonso in his prime? Do we even practice finishing because Vinicius clearly has not gotten the memo? Courtois was not at fault, but why um, the F did we waste $80 million on a keeper we did not need when we could have used that same cash to buy a central midfielder? Um, and uh, could we have sold some of these players and bought new ones like Pogba and Eriksen? As much as I hate Mourinho, I would love for him to come back and put discipline into this team because this is useless right now. We should never lose to Mallorca even without our best players. Okay, where do you want to start with this one? Um, so I I don't disagree with much of this, actually. like, I mean, the Mourinho thing is kind of the main thing, which I completely disagree with, but I understand the sentiment. Like, 
um, the way people are going, right? Because they feel people like this team lacks discipline structure. So a lot of people are going back to Mourinho, ignoring the 2012-13 and ignoring how like many of his ideas and, and you know his tactical systems are outdated now, as has been evidenced by a sign at Manchester United. But yeah, I mean, that, I mean, we've discussed that plenty of times and I'm sure we'll have like a chance to discuss that in detail in the future because Jose won't stop flirting with Real Madrid. But to his other points, I mean, to mark the, you know, defensive midfield, I think just the larger point about like the defensive structure, like the funny thing was when Valverde came on and for that brief period when we had 11 men with an actual midfield, we didn't actually look that much better defensively. Like the the first thing that happened after Valverde came on is Mallorca. The only time they did this in the game, back to front, just like played through, passed through our entire defensive structure. Yeah. Wasn't Militao that like right when, right when the sub was made? Right. Like literally right after. And it's like, to me, it's a thing, right? Like it was definitely, you know, I'm not saying <laughs> it was exactly the same as like, you know, we'll be fine, like, or not fine, but it'll always be the same. It doesn't matter if we don't play with the midfield. That's not what I'm saying. It's to a point that, like, there are larger issues outside of the fact that, like, we played without a midfield today, right? Like, we can't isolate these defensive performances to just this game. There has been a consistent lack of, like, organization and compactness in this team, you know, outside of, like, a couple. Like, the Sevilla game, to me, was the main one. But I think even after that, we played some not so great. We played Osasuna, that we played Atletico Madrid, who's having the worst, you know, attacking start they've ever had in the league under Simeone. And I watched their game today, and it, it you know, it wasn't versus Valencia, and it wasn't the best, even against a very, you know, poor defensive team in, against Valencia. You know, we, you know, we showed decent stuff versus not great offensive teams, and I think, you know, it made us feel good about ourselves. But I mean, even if you give us that, like, what three or four game stretch. For the vast majority of the season, there have been defensive issues. And I think, you know, where else are you going to point point out, like, the issue then in training? Like, you know, if we're not drilling ourselves in defensive structures, you know, and figuring out how to close gaps as a unit and press as a unit, then when are we going to do it? So, I, I mean, I, think, I actually think that's a valid point to ask, you know, what are we doing in training then? Um, and then the Courtois thing was interesting because it's like one of the only people I've ever seen say it's not Courtois' fault, which is true. It's not um, – but also the fact that like maybe we didn't need to sp- spend eighty million on on him, um, and I think that's kind of the nuance that's being lost, right? Like because the vitriol de Courtois is so much, I feel like reacting to kind of like defend him, and I think that gives the perception that I think Courtois is a great keeper. You know, from day one, I kind of question why we were buying Courtois. And up until this point, I actually think, like, if you're not saying that he should die or something, that, like, it's there are some decent critiques of his game. The main one being that I don't think he fits our style that well. Like, I think part of the reason he looked so good with Atletico Madrid and Mourinho's Chelsea was that, you know, he's, he's much better suited to being a goalkeeper in deep, deeper defensive blocks where the team is forced to cross and, and shoot long shots against him. And he actually looks really quite solid there. But when he's playing with the team that likes to play with the high line, that doesn't have the best transition defense, it's going to face a lot of one-on-ones and has to keep coming out of his area. I mean, that's kind of where he's weak. But at the same time, like literally any time we score doesn't matter whether Courtois is like specifically at fault for that goal people are just all over him and I I mean I have to say at this point 
has gotten patently ridiculous. Like it's just pure agenda, pure hate now from people who felt, you know, there was an injustice to, done to Kaylor Navas and there's just absolutely no logic whatsoever to a lot of vitriol being thrown at Courtois. I feel like as a fan, I have to stand up and say, like, you know, we have to stop this now. Will I convince anyone to stop? No, but I feel like that I have to say it because there's, it, it's not, it's not common sense. It's not reasoned criticism anymore. It's just pure hate. And to have that for one of our players, like, to me, is just ridiculous. And I, I think it has to stop at some point. Yeah. And so the Courtois thing is interesting because I think the way it played out, and I'll preface it by saying I don't think Courtois is a great goalkeeper. I actually really don't. Um, I don't think he's a bad goalkeeper. I don't think he stands out, though. And I don't think um, he's on the level of any of the top keepers in the world. But when we signed him, I actually, I, I it made sense to me because um, I'm, I wasn't a huge fan of Kiko Casilla. I think you were a bit higher on him than I was. But I, I, I really welcomed the idea that we could go into any game with either Courtois or Kaylor Navas. Um, and and I'd be and I was happy about that because I don't think Courtois came that expensive either. Um, eighty million on a keeper. I don't know if that is accurate. Um, now that I read that in the question. Anyways, <clears throat> the problem was essentially as it unfolded was that I think there was a realization within the board that like we one of these keepers can't be on the bench because they're too good, and we just bought the younger and more expensive Courtois, which means from a financially logical stand-up, stand of uh, uh, our point of view, uh, it has to be Kaler who has to be sacrificed. And the problem was that I think Kaler was actually better than Courtois. And then so that that changes things a little bit. But I don't. I think with the Courtois thing at this point, no matter what goal Riamja can see, like you said, I think Courtois is going to get hate. Um. And I think part of the reason is, well, one, like you mentioned, it's um, at this point, he's like a culprit or whatever, um, the fall guy. I think people also feel that Kaler, even if a goal is, if, if, if he's not expected to save a shot, he will do it. He'll pull saves out of his ass, which we don't really see Courtois do often. And we do sometimes, don't get me wrong, but I don't think we see it often where... I think they just want to see like Courtois outperform a shot that's faced at him and save a, 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 a shot that he's not supposed to save, which you don't see that often. It's just like he's not at fault, but he's not really stopping them either. So I think that's that's where it lies. Uh, whereas you see kind of like the best goalkeepers in the world, they will pull their, those saves out of their asses regularly, whether it's Oblak being an alien, Ter Stegen, go down the list with Allison etc um and even Kaylor. i think i think that's where it comes from so i i understand that but that's the thing i mean i'm gonna get absolutely flamed for this but there's no way around this i have to say it at some point but like Kaylor did not do that with the same frequency following the 2015-16 season and i personally find like the narrative surrounding Kaylor novice's legacy at real madrid to be kind of one of the strangest phenomenon that I've seen as long as I've been a fan at this club. With that, 15-16 was a legitimately brilliant year where I thought he was competing to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Where, Especially that game against Celta Vigo when we, Rafa Benitez was still our coach. Like He kept us alive. Like It was insane. I genuinely... I, I mean, I, I was one of those people saying, like, 
you know, the fax machine debacle was a good thing. We didn't need to give, we didn't need to hear, give Navas a chance. I remember how good he was in 13, 14 with Levante that, you know, this guy can be something. And he was the 15, 16 season was excellent. I had no qualms whatsoever. And then, you know, he had that injury, you know, he had surgery and then, you know, he just wasn't the same, you know, both looking at like post shot expected goals number, how much he's saving above average, you know, did not show that it was the same. And then also the eye test apparently only to me where that, you know, he became far more mistake prone, especially in the 2017, 18 season in the champions league knockouts. If Courtois had made some of the mistakes that he made, Courtois would not be alive today. You know, there was, the, the you know the positioning mistakes versus Bayern Munich, especially the goal against Joshua Kimmich. You know, then there was you know him versus Juventus in the second leg where he just dropped the ball. You know, just it it flew straight into his chest. He just dropped it and it was kicked into goal. You know, numerous other errors within that knockout performance that we just ignored completely. And I don't think you know I I I don't necessarily think we need to be like you know direct hate towards Taylor Navas. That's never the answer to me. But it's just interesting to me that after all of that, we have discussions now where people are saying Kaylor Nava should replace Casillas in a decade or eleven for Real Madrid because apparently he was that incredible. When to me it was one world-class season followed by two inconsistent but I think above-average seasons. And I think it's the fact that it was seen as an injustice against Kaylor Navas in the 2014-15 season and in the 2018-19 season that has created a level of cult following for him because you know he he's he's a humble guy you know he never really complained about it publicly he just did his work you know and he put in a heroic performance in the 2015-16 season that has created this kind of devotion that Kayla Navas never did anything wrong that all his mistakes never happened and that you know, he's always been a world-class keeper his time at Real Madrid. And in my opinion, that's just been a false narrative. Now, I would still have him over Thibaut Courtois because I think he's a better fit for Real Madrid's style. I still think, even though he's become more mistake-prone, he has the ability, like you said, to pull out saves that Courtois can't. But I think, you know, I personally think that the narrative around Kaylor Navas this entire time has been misguided. And I'm also aware that the vast majority of people do not agree with me on that. All right. Well, uh, rest in peace, all Marvin's mentions. The who hates <laughs> Kaylor Navas. Um, you don't even have Twitter. You don't. That you're kind of fortunate now. Now, so rest in peace, managing Madrid's mentions. Um, let's move on. Uh, by the way, the Mourinho thing again for the millionth time. Count me out completely. Came up in this question. Um, there are a few managers right now that I think would turn. Would I would take over Zidane, and he does not qualify. He is not among the shortlist. Um, by any means. Uh, yeah, for- so I, I kind of mm-hmm. dominated the discussion there. Apologies for that, but I just kind of had to get it out there. And I didn't know if I was going to talk about Courtois like that, I might as well have just kind of laid out my full opinion on Navas. Uh, great, man. No, it's, it, was, it was great. It was uh, full of controversy, and that's just what we need right now. Uh, Frederick Rentekiro <laughs> says, I really feel for Odriozola. Do you think it's a mental thing that some players like Teo and Odriozola don't make it in Madrid? I mean, it's not like they were playing in some obscure Liga in some unheard of country when we bought them. They had performed really well La Liga before coming here. I think that's a good point. I mean, sometimes we like... By the way, like Odriozola by no means hasn't... The idea he hasn't made it in Madrid is not true yet. And Lucas Navarrete, God love him, my, my mailbag uh, partner in crime, 
really went out on a limb on Twitter and said that Odrizola is finished uh, or something along those lines <laughs> on Twitter after his red card. Um, but the idea of oh this so oh this was his, Lucas's tweet. Odrizola just sealed his fate away from the Bernabeu. No way he stays in the club past next summer. Uh, coming in hot, Lucas Navarrete. So I think with Odriozola or any of these players, like Frederick mentions, Teo, I think it is worth pointing out that when so many people complain about why did we sign this guy, they're no good. This is These are all calculated signings in the sense that Alvaro Odriozola was not only one of the best right backs in La Liga with Sociedad, he was one of the best players. Um, the type of player who, as a right back, the entire team was built through him offensively. They'd give him the ball in every possession. He would burn players on the flank and put in accurate crosses in. Um, Teo Hernandez was great at Alaves as a left back. And I haven't watched him at all this season, but from what I understand and from the, my friends who cover that team, he's doing well at Milan, which is great He because he was terrible at Sociedad uh, on that loan spell. Um, but they're not. we're not buying these players... Uh, on like this kind of like this uneducated, unresearched whim. Um, Matt Wilty had a great thread on Twitter the other day, kind of like going through all of the young players that Real Madrid have signed for like literally peanuts relative to what other players go for in the market. And they either become important squad players or we flip them for a profit. And these are all calculated signings. Um, I think Odrizola, I don't think he's lit anything on fire in a, like and been this blazing right fullback. But I don't think he's been that bad either. I think he's defensively, he has a lot of brain farts and insecurities. But I also think he's shown a lot of good. And, and with him, he's also pretty young still. Um, so the idea he hasn't made it in Madrid is um, harsh to me. But also we have to like, there's two ways to answer this. One is either be patient and maybe you'll see the fruits in a few years because not every player is going to make it right away. And again, we can we can revisit this so many times on the podcast and we maybe we should just keep doing it at, even at the risk of sounding repetitive. Sergio Ramos until the year 2014 was a nightmare defensively. Getting skinned regularly by the best and not some of not the best um, wingers and players on earth. Marcelo, it was, I'd, I'd say, a little bit later than that. Uh, but around that time, maybe I'd say 15, 16, where he really came into his own. How many more players do you want to add to this list? Some of the biggest legends, it took them years to to kind of go over their, in, get over their insecurities and make it with the team. So either we have to have patience and stick with them and grow with them and develop them and go through the growing pains and hope they improve. Or instead of saying, is it a failure? Some players just thrive in different scenarios and, um, doesn't mean they're bad players or good players, but it's just part of the process and you can make money off them or, and not every player will work out. And some players will become legends or good role players. Some players will get sold. Um, so I just think like sometimes, sometimes we just kind of accept that every team gets their signings and their scouting reports wrong and every team gets them right. And it's just kind of a mixed bag and I'm kind of at peace with it. Um, but I do think, it is the club's responsibility to put those players in positions where they can thrive and do well. And the problem again is that one manager will value one player more than the other. And at a club like at Real Madrid, which has such a huge turnover of coaches, admittedly less so since 2009, 
um, or 2010, um, that can be a problem. Yeah, I think you answered that really well. I mean, one thing, I two things to add. One would be that, like, I don't think Odriozola has ever really had a stable environment to perform in since he's been at Real Madrid. I mean, no one would disagree that last season was an absolute mess. Three different managers, the largest part of that under Solari, you know, who's my thoughts on his tactics are clear. And even under Zidane, it wasn't really all that impressive. And then this season, I would, I, I would, I, I'm, I'm fine having patience with Odriozola Zola because I know his potential. I saw him as a sociedad. I know how good he is. But I'm also fine with having patience because I know that by the end of the season, if he doesn't show much, we have Ashraf yeah. who is continuing to perform at quite a high level. And so to me, that brings even less risk into the equation because it's like, okay, if Odriozola doesn't work out, it's disappointing. You know, he has a lot of talent, but we'll have a decision to make at the end of the season and it, it becomes easy. We'll say, okay, we'll we'll let you go or we'll loan you out because we have Ashraf coming in and he'll be an excellent backup. And because Carvajal has shown something of a resurgence this season, which I hope will continue, hasn't been perfect, but I hope he's on the upward track. You know, if, if that holds, you know, I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with the situation right now because we're kind of spoiled for choice at the right back position at the moment. That's true. And on that note, I think it's important to point out that when Ashraf was here, a lot of players... He did not play well. He did not yeah. play well or he had his moments and then overall people just didn't think he was good enough. So now he goes in a change of scenario under Lucien Favre who really likes him and he's put him in different positions and he's looked good. Um, and, you know, who's not to say if Odorzola was in a situation where he goes down alone under in a good situation that he also um, looked... So, like, there's a lot of players who look good elsewhere when you bring them back. It's not... And Vallejo is another example, by the way, who was phenomenal at Frankfurt. And it's kind of been... But that's down. also more of an injuries thing. That's also more of an injuries thing for sure. But, I mean... We also saw him get absolutely burned alive by fans when he came back from Frankfurt, yeah. didn't play, and then played, and then didn't look good. And then, you know, even with Atrap, I think it's worth pointing out, you know, we watch a lot of his yeah. games at Dortmund. He can get bullied at the far post defensively, like, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and then he does a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. And, like, he wouldn't be... He would have... I think there's a lot of moments, if you take his Dortmund performances and you put him here, I'm sure he'd get his fair share of criticism too. So it's like, you know, sometimes we're just so enamored with what we don't have. And I think it's just worth pointing out that I think we just have to remember that everything is objective and no players are perfect. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Um, And there are, are, there are some unicorns in football that I think hold such a high standard um, of not perfection, but at such a high level they raise the bar that we expect those players like an Mbappe or like a, a De Bruyne right now or in past Ronaldo and Messi that it's just hard sometimes for us to accept that, you know, we have to go another route sometimes and rely on our system and our scheme and getting the best out of these players who can't always mask your your team's weaknesses. Uh, I'm interested in mm. what happens when Odegaard has his first rough streak, which is Sociedad. Because he's been playing at such a high level, obviously he can't stand. I mean, he can sustain playing really well, but not at creating like the three chances per 90 minutes that he's creating, which is like topping the league. Like, I, yeah. I'm just interested what the reaction will be when he goes to his first rough spell. Time will tell, my friend. Um, all right, let's move on. Brennan Powers says, 
Our clear lack of midfield depth depth will most likely be our downfall this year, won't it? Especially with Modric being 34 and Croatia relying on him to put in so many minutes. Today showed that any injuries in midfield will hurt us. Do you believe the team should make a move in January, even if it's taking a player on loan, to just help relieve some of the playing time from Casemiro? What do you think? January signings? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. Like, I mean, you were right to say that, like, in this specific game, the lack of midfield depth is being overstated a bit. But I, but then you went on and mentioned how many minutes Casemiro was getting. Like, I think it's no one disagrees that we we have a weakness in midfield. We we did a school of Real Madrid video specifically on this topic, so it's not like we didn't feel the same towards the beginning of the season. I think it's necessary, and there are, I, I don't know the credibility to this, but there are talks about getting Ericsson. I mean. Tottenham's situation is not great right now. There's news which I, I I I do feel is credible that like the players you know are just you know they want to move on. They you know a lot of them are you know kind of revolting a little bit. And you know Ericsson, who do- doesn't even want to be there in the first place because he wanted to move in the summer is definitely one of those players. And it might be possible to go out and get him. Um, which I I know Real Madrid Real Madrid fans have cooled off a lot on Ericsson, but you know if. I think he could be useful, very useful in a three-man midfield. I really? Think, though, but so where think, does he fit? Because my question is is this. Um, he's not uh, a Casemiro replacement, obviously, but isn't doesn't no. he already reside in a position where we have James and Isco and so, and in the future on Odegaard, uh, who I guess is like a two years away now if he stays, but does he is he really worth pursuing when we already have players in this position? So, I mean, I would... Well, okay, one is that Zidane is just not going to play Hamas there. Even in a situation where we had no central midfielders, he refused to play a three-man midfield with Hamas. Uh, Isco, I would say, like, Zidane's shown a willingness to use Isco in that three-man midfield. But, like, because just based on what we've seen so far this season, the 4-3-3 is still Zidane's go-to formation. So he has Casemiro in defensive midfield. You have Modric, Kroos, Valverde... To me, there is still a need to have, you know, an offensive, you know, a person who can create from that third midfield position, which is why Pogba would be my ideal signing for that. I mean, because we need some kind of midfield depth somewhere. Like, if we had Ericsson right now, we could have gone with three-man midfield of Casemiro, Isco, Ericsson, um, which, you know, I would have preferred someone like Kroos or Modric alongside him. But it would have worked. You know, Ericsson proved that he can play that role. Now, he's not perfect defensively, and he would retain similar weaknesses that Isco and Hamas does playing that position. But, you know, he can definitely play that role. He can play at a quality level. But I think because of the way Tottenham burned out, I mean, the reason Ericsson played in midfield the first place with Tottenham, having never done so was before, is because Tottenham essentially had no midfielders. Yeah, they had no And so it led to burning out. It had led, led to a burning out by March, essentially, even earlier than that, to where I think people looked at Ericsson's performances and they're like, ah, yeah, I'm not so hot anymore. Ericsson's not the ideal signing for me. I expressed like concerns about it earlier. Um, but after speaking to Spurs fans in detail about how he performs in that position, if we improve structurally a little bit, which no matter which way you put it, we have to, I'm comfortable with him there. And just because, to me... This becomes such a big situation, you know, or a important dire situation down the line with our midfield depth. As more and more minutes get piled on, we need another central midfielder. Now, as for the replacement or Casemiro, um, 
yeah, but I to me there's a like a less obvious the replacement for Casimir is less obvious. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'll keep saying this: we had Marcos Llorente and we decided to let him go. But yeah, I mean, I would be open to a Casimir backup as well because, like you said, I mean, he's played pretty much every single minute possible. But so I think the issue with uh, a Casemiro replacement at this time, in the eyes of Zidane anyway, is that, and by the way, like out of all the midfielders we get continually linked to, Pogba is the only one that really excites me because I don't, I don't know if purchasing someone like Eriksen or Van de Beek, who two, who two players I'm really high on, by the way, move the needle enough for me to spend um, that would that would be better than, than players I would just rather have like from within with James Isco or just bring Odegaard back a year early. But Pogba is someone that does move the needle enough for me, and I'm, I'm, that, that excites me more than the others. But the, the problem of a Casemiro replacement specifically is that I don't know if there's one on the market now who's available and good enough that Zidane would actually see as a like-for-like replacement. Like Let's say, I don't know, for example... Ruben Neves, who's 21, um, who is somehow only 21, by the way, even though it feels like he's been around for like a decade um, as a prospect. You get someone like him, and we have no guarantee that Zidane would even play him or or not just put Kroos and Valverde there at the in that base ultimately because Zidane likes to just change things anyway. And I don't know if he really... Values near unless you're getting someone like N'Golo Kante, I don't I don't know if there's someone on the market right now that it, that just comes in as a replacement that Zidane plays. I just don't unless there's a name I'm missing. Is there a name I'm missing? I'm not saying there's not good uh, defensive midfielders. I'm just saying is there anyone on the market right now that Zidane would be like I would like to sign him in January and then I can put him as a Casemiro replacement. I'm not sure that player really exists. No, I agree. I agree. Um, and it's because, like, the thing with Llorente is he's not, he's different from Casemiro, but he's not that different. Like, Llorente is a classic defensive midfielder. Like, you know, he's a classic high, you know, he, he racks up high defensive numbers and interceptions and tackles. You know, he's a little more, you know, positionally focused in the sense that, like, he, he, he racks up more of his numbers through interceptions and tackles, but, like, he does a classic defensive midfielder job. He's not like a regista by anything. He's not like a Pirlo or a Kroos playing in that position. His primary strengths are defensive ones. And his weaknesses, you know, are, are more to do with actually his vertical passing, and etc. The reason we highlight him over Casemiro in that instance is because he has better press resistance, you know, and he's more capable on the ball. But he's not amazing, you know, there by any means. It's not like he's like Kroos-level passer or anything. And so if that doesn't do it for Zidane... Then you're you've isolated replacements or backups to such a small level of players, like you said, to essentially they must have the ability, you know, they must have the physical ability, you know, the intelligence and the technical ability to basically cover entire, you know, holes in defensive structures themselves, which is what Casemiro specializes in. Then, like, yeah, like you said, it's basically only like Conte, um, and so yeah, I don't see a replacement for Casemiro coming in though. If people have names, I'd love to hear them because I do think a backup is necessary because Casemiro is going to be burned out by March. Um, but yeah, I if we can find a stopgap central midfield option, I'm okay with it. But I do think there's some validity, Keon, in what you said that like if we're going to go out and spend the money, we should probably get one who who's really going to be world class in that position. But 
I, I really do think that the lack of midfield depth could end up killing the season, um, that it might be worth it in the short term to get someone like Ericsson, who I do think would add a lot, but definitely not as much as Pogba. So, but one of the problems with Llorente, too, is that he wanted to leave. So, uh, well, I mean, he wanted to leave because Zidane said, like, I mean, you're not going to start here. Well, I, but I, and I don't see anything wrong with Zidane saying that to him. If he's not going to start, he's not going to start being upfront about it. But I think with uh, Llorente's problem is that now he's in a situation where he's not playing e- any, either. And well, that's because Partey is the best defensive midfielder in the league. Honestly, this correct. season he's Par- been the best. Partey has been undroppable, and then but his other problem right now is that Simeone doesn't really play with a four-three-three or like one defensive midfielder. Yeah, he basically plays a double pivot and like four central midfielders across the park. Um, and so he's in a situation where he basically he just comes off the bench and. I'm sure had he known that, he would have been like, well, maybe I should just stay and train here. Um, so whatever happened there, I think both the player and the team kind of just spotched that a little bit. Um, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, I, I feel that a little bit. But, like, Llorente had clearly shown that, like, I mean, like, Casimir, like, frankly, did not have a great season along with a lot of other people, and there were really very few that did, that I think to thrive in such a bad situation, I think, proved a lot. One was Benzema, obviously. The other was Vinicius. And I think Llorente, Regulon, and then Llorente was kind of the other guy who really showed that he could add something. Like, I think when you have that season that Casimir had, you at least tell Llorente that you, like, if you show what you did last season... You had to compete for the starting spot. But even in, before this season even started, Zidane, I don't think, even gave like a single game to Urente. He might have just given him one. You know, to me, like that's just a clear message that's like, I don't value you. And if I do value you, it's so it's only ever going to be as a backup. So in that instance, I can understand like Urente wanting to move on. But at the same time, I agree that Atletico Madrid wasn't the greatest choice. Like another thing to add to that is so much of Simeone's offensive game, which I don't like, but what it revolves around is constantly hitting vertical passes, these really long, flat vertical passes into the half spaces where, like, all of Atletico Madrid's players congest in. You know, and he does it without trying to, you know, destabilize the opposition first, so it leads to a lot of turnovers, but it puts a lot of onus on the deeper players to make those plays, which Partey is really good at, but what I mentioned before was Llorente's weakness in his game is a vertical passing. So he doesn't even have his ideal position in Atletico and his offensive role that he's required to do is something that he's not the strongest in. So, yeah, I mean, I have to agree that, like, I don't know if Llorente made the best choice about insisting that he he, he go to Atletico Madrid. Um, <clears throat> okay, let's move on. Um, Varun says, To be frank, Real Madrid didn't play badly. It's just a bad day at the office, but please talk about that James blinder pass and that magical touch from Benzema, which hit the post. That play is worth talking. Please do talk. Um, it was nice. My man, Varun, the only optimistic Madrevista after that game. Like that deserves, that deserves some commendation, man. That deserves some commendation. And yeah, that play was amazing. Um, I mean, I don't know personally how much more I can add to that because... 
it was it was just a pass and it was just a really good touch from Benzema like I don't have like Ray Hudson vocabulary that I can like really add more to that to like um, make it seem more magnificent than it already is if you saw it. Bernard Kofour says, we can clearly see that Vinicius is struggling this season as compared to his breaking, uh, breaking forth an extraordinary display of skills last season, which if not, um, which it kept us in the top four. It became the very crux of our essence. Don't you guys think the presence of Hazard and Zidane's lack of trust in him is somewhat stifling the growth and awesomeness of Vinny? Um, I think we've talked about this quite a bit throughout the season. Um, and we've talked about it quite a bit on this podcast. So I'm just trying to think, is there anything uh, anything else that you want to add to this? Only thing is that like, I do think he... It is a little visible that I think he seems to lack the confidence that he did last season. Um, in just that, just looking at the decisiveness of some of his dribbling actions, there just seems to be a little more hesitation, a little less conviction in how he's executing them. But, I mean, other than that, I don't have much other to add. Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to get into some political stuff to end this podcast, which wasn't necessarily expected, and they came before the game, but... Uh, classical related in Catalonia and stuff and politics. Um, Sheikh Atiri says, can you do my research from you, please? Were the sentences for Catalan activists legal and just or were they not? Is the Spanish government at wrong here? I love how Pep says he will stand up for human rights everywhere, including in Arab countries, as his salary comes to the UAE. And Solomon Ortiz says, hi, Kian, what are your personal thoughts on Catalan's desired independence from Spain? excuse me, vis-a-vis Barcelona and the charged political atmosphere that is surrounding this upcoming Clásico. Do you support uh, an independent Catalan nation separate from Spain? I'd like to hear Gabe's thoughts also on this topic. Cool, thanks, uh, Solomon. Uh, Gabe is obviously not on this podcast. I think he's aiming to be on the midweek show, the Galatasaray one. I'm going to actually get this over to you first, Om, and then I will add stuff um, to it, I don't, I don't like talking about these political stuff on the podcast. Uh, but some of this stuff is so intertwined with what's happening with football that you can't separate it. And the reality of sports now in general, whether it's the NBA in China or, uh, or what we're seeing now in Catalonia, it's actually part of it. And there, there are social justice issues, human rights issues all over the world. And um, I, it's important to talk about. We can't blindly ignore it as much as we want to talk about sports only. Um, but I'm going to swing it to you first, Tom. Yeah, so I have more like just general thoughts. Like, I mean, I, just, I don't want to pretend to be like an expert of something that I'm not, right? Like, you know, um, there are certain political issues which I can go into very deep. And if some of you followed my account on Twitter when it still existed, you would know that, especially with U.S. politics. With this just in general... Um, in terms of like the, you know, p- opinions on Catalan independence, it's just like my position personally is to generally support like the right to self-determination. Um, and I believe that, you know, that that is important. And I, when, you, when you're dealing with, you know, pr- protests, especially peaceful one, I think it is pretty inexcusable to essentially like violently deal with protests and have police go and beat people which was kind of the situation that happened two years ago in 2017 with the protests over the referendum 
Um, just those are kind of my general thoughts on it, but also specifically with the Catalan case, there are some concerns I have with kind of like the nationalistic element of it being like essentially like I'm just not a big believer in nationalism at all. I think nationalism can be dangerous. And if you're kind of basing, you know, a separatist movement on na- nationalism, you know, there it can quickly kind of, I think, turn to work towards right wing elements that I kind of find distasteful. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I would hesitate to say more just because I, given the platform that I have on this podcast, I don't want to misinform. Um, yeah, I mean, but I think I you know, answered like general opinions on it and, I wish Gabe was on the pod because I know he has quite a lot more knowledge about this and having lived in Madrid, he has some very, um, some very deep opinions and some very well-informed ones on this. Um, I'd also encourage, uh, if, um, if you are not part of it already, Diego and I, uh, spoke about this to some extent and some detail on, on the Chudos Tacticas podcast for our patrons on Friday's show. And Diego is obviously someone who lives in Barcelona and and uh, and sees it firsthand, and he had some well-informed stuff to say about it too. I will say, I'm completely with you on like just death to nationalism. I think it's a poison. I think it's very dangerous. And I think my general stance in all this is that break down all the borders. Um, the more we open this up and and realize that the earth is literally should be regarded as one country and not uh, a million different borders. Um, I think it's, it's much more open-minded that way and much more embracing. And you kind of start breaking down the barriers of discrimination and racism. I know it's easier said than done, but on the flip side is whether you want to break down these borders or not. Um, there are definitely certain nations who are suffering and certain sections of the world who are suffering at the hands of an oppressive government. And I think, and I'm not, I don't want, I don't want to really take sides either way, but I will say that coming from my background, I'm very, very sympathetic and emotional and also um, a little bit, um, I guess not, not attached, but very understanding of, of, the kind of any any minority that goes through unjust suffering and especially when it's like a, 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 as a result of a peaceful protest just because of their beliefs um, and I say that because I come from a Baha'i background as as many of you already know and Baha'is in Iran um, are essentially since the inception of the Baha'i faith has been have been persecuted because we're not allowed to attend university in Iran we're not uh, and Pretty much every Baha'i cemetery in Iran has been bulldozed. Baha'is are in prison, and now it's less barbaric. Before it was stoning to death and hang and, and bloodshed. Now it's just you're you're in prison uh, because of your beliefs, because you're not you're not uh, you're not part of the Islamic regime, and you're a Baha'i. Um, when you fill out a form to go to university, you have to choose your religion, and the the options are like three or four. And if you put other, they ask you what you are, and if you say Baha'i, that's it. You're not allowed to attend. You're not allowed to own a business. So I come from a long history of this, from a very uh, facing oppressive regime, and I have a lot of family members who were killed about uh, uh, in Iran because of this, and I have family members in jail right now as well. And I've never been to Iran, but my family left before I was born for safety reasons. And so, anytime situations like this arise, when 
uh, a group of people are oppressed for doing nothing wrong, um, and they're and they're not even oppressed. Uh, it's it's violence that comes into play, you know, out of peaceful protests. Um, it never, it, it it definitely affects me on an emotional level, um, and I so I just wanted to say that. But I, while I want like all these borders to be broken down, I think we also just have to be sympathetic about what pe- some people are going through. And I and that's it. I don't. I'm not going to say any sides or this side or that side. Um, I just think that it's a sensitive topic, and I think we have to be understanding that like you can't deal with protesters um, in a in a violent manner. Um, it just it's, it just adds fuel to the fire. That's all. And for the classical, by the way, um, I think it is maybe just to put this on a slightly lighter note. Lucas and I talked about this a little bit, and then Diego and I talked about this on Friday. I think it's actually quite beneficial to Real Madrid from a footballing perspective mm-hmm. um, to, to not have to play this game right now, just so we can have a little bit of rest. Now, mind you, the December schedule is crazy because we have Valencia and Athletic sandwiched around the Barcelona game which is not easy, but at least some time to buy with injuries and, and focusing on the Galatasaray game without having to worry about that game three days later or whatever it is. Um, yeah. Dave, do you want to add anything to this? Only just because like Shay mentioned Pep. Um, mm. like, yeah, I, Pep is a huge hypocrite. Like I respect him so much as a coach more than most Madridistas do. But when it comes to his issues on social stances, he's a complete hypocrite. Like someone, you know, he says he'll stand up for human rights everywhere. He doesn't even really do it within his own dressing room. There have been a couple of racism issues that he's just kind of brushed off, you know, and tried to downplay. And then obviously the fact that like Man City is funded by an Arab state that like, you know, using that as committing serious human rights violations and then is basically like illegally funding, you know, all his close finances essentially. So, yeah, I mean, I think all of us are kind of hypocritical in some way or another. That's just kind of human nature. But for Pep to kind of come out and say that the way he does, knowing his position, either one shows extreme arrogance or it just shows like a complete lack of self-awareness that he truly believes that he stands up for human rights everywhere because he has strong, strong opinions about the Catalonian protests. All right, uh, an hour and twenty minutes in. That was uh, long, yeah. long one. Let's do let's do a quick patron sh- uh, shout outs before I wrap it up. Uh, again, patreon.com slash manage Madrid. Go there, pledge. Shout out to these unbelievably amazing, fantastic human beings who pledge ten dollars or more who support their show. Um, we get a specific shout out on the podcast. So shout out to Mikhail Nilsson, Frederick Sundros, John Fernandez, Said Mahat, Juan Balacio, Zero One, Adam Dorsey. Frederick Rantakiro, Leon Stavernakis, Christian Gonzalez, Bjorn Salvador, Essa Hariri, Ilian Zako, Yahya Ibrahim, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Tyler Simon, Sad Omar, Sheikh Hatiri, Olawapamimo, Oladunjoy, Christian Toff, Charles Williams, Tarek Sphere, Kunal Tilakar, Marin Myrtle, Tyler Dixon, Raul Gutierrez, Raga Potluri. Vicky Cohen, Gary Kohut, Sujai Wani, Peña Marerisa, San Francisco Bay Area, Brandon Stevens, Casper Moscala, Catherine Fagundo, Zoran Bosanchich, Rafael Servia, Karen Scherer, Somanchu Singh, Brennan Powers, Ahmed Almayahi, Rovi Tahiev, Amy L., Anthony Armesto, Shabal Sharapov, Fabian Moreno, Varun, Bernard Kufur, Ashik Bashar, AMB6901, 
Daniel Pinkney, Muxith, Muxith Thangal. Muxith, please message me and tell me how to pronounce your name. I feel like I'm getting it wrong. I apologize about that. I always have trouble with that one. Magnus Lex, Jason Fitz, Solomon Ortiz, and Philip Hammer. Thank you guys so much for your support. Oh, Marvin, thank you for joining the show. And until the Galatasaray post-game show, uh, we'll chat then. Uh, thank you and Hala Mari. Hala Mari.